when you're approaching warfare, you need to recognize that there are some things with the data that are, that's at your fingertips that you can do and some things you cannot do and you're never going to be able to do. And so we need to be thinking about warfare in those terms and ensuring that people go away from our PME with that in mind. Welcome to the Air Force Lessons Learned podcast. On this episode, I sit down with Dr. Joshua Sipper to discuss possible lessons our audience members can learn from the information operations taking place in the Ukraine-Russian war. Dr. Joshua Alton Sipper is an assistant professor of cyber warfare studies at the U.S. Air Force Air Command and Staff College, also called ACSC. He has over 25 years of experience in intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, electromagnetic warfare, and cyber operations. Dr. Sipper teaches air power operations and strategy and contemporary warfare in the Air Power Department at ACSC. He is also the co-director of the Cyberspace Specialization, teaching ISR, cyberspace, cyber, and electromagnetic warfare. Dr. Sipper has been featured as a keynote speaker at numerous conferences and on the Newt's World Podcast the official podcast of former speaker Newt Gingrich. Dr. Sipper is the author of numerous articles and book chapters concerning cyberspace operations, ISR, and EW. His most recent title is The Cyber Meta Reality, Beyond the Metaverse. Dr. Sipper is also a fellow with the International Academy, Research and Industry Association, and a lifetime member of the Military Cyber Professionals Association and the Association of Old Crows. Here's our conversation. Dr. Sipper, super happy to have you here. Uh, we've talked separately in the hallways, and one of the, as a student of history myself, one of the, the things I'm noticing as I'm watching the Ukraine war unfold, uh, I had recently studied the Spanish Civil War, and I noticed the evolution of close air support happened throughout that, but nobody seemed to be paying attention except for the Germans. And so it occurred to me as we talked uh, talked in the hallway there that perhaps the Ukraine war, especially in the information domain, is advertising something about the character war that has changed significantly that we need to be paying attention to. And I, that's why I want to do this podcast. So I think you agree with me and tell us a little bit about the scale information operations in the Ukraine war. What What is happening that uh, that is so unique and different? What, what, what should we be paying attention to? Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me on today. Uh, great to be here today with you and uh, looking forward to having a great conversation. But yeah, just kind of to follow on to your question, one of the things, many things that is going on in Ukraine right now, as far as you know how, how it's so different and how it's changing the nature of warfare, is um, just the the scale at which information is flowing here and there and yonder throughout this whole conflict. And it's on many different levels, too. One of the things that I've approached through my research over the last several years has been trying to focus in on uh, the different, what what are generally referred to as information-related capabilities like cyber operations, information operations, electromagnetic warfare, ISR, weather operations, public affairs, those those sort of key pieces or disciplines that are represented at 16th Air Force, and we're seeing that happen at Army's cyber uh, electromagnetic activities and Navy's 10th Fleet, all these information warfare uh, service commands, and even start starting to see some something in the wind along those lines at Cybercom um, itself. But just this growth of, of these uh, confluences of information within these different information disciplines and being brought to bear in, in a lot of different ways. And we, we see that, you know, from the simplest ways of, for instance, uh, President Zelensky 
standing up and saying, I'm still here, you know, on YouTube or wherever he may put that out into social media platforms, just basically saying, look, you know, you're not going to drive me away. I'm here to lead the Ukrainian people, you know, going all the way from something that simple uh, to the level of potentially false flag type things that we just saw this whole drone quote unquote, you know, supposed alleged drone attack uh, on the Kremlin, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of questions about that um, and whether or not that was just an information ploy by the Russian government and by President Putin to try to draw attention away from f failures of the Russian military and the Russian government and and sort of try to sour uh, the successes of President Zelensky and the Ukrainian forces and, and the help that he's receiving from the West and so on and so forth. So just a lot of of things like that going on, in addition to what we've seen along the lines of the Viasat attacks early on in the war and then the replacement of that with uh, the Starlink satellite clusters or constellations that have been uh, offered to help offset that issue. So it's just been an extremely dynamic movement of, of information and information resources and channels and capabilities that ha have really shown the stark contrast of what we've seen in the in past wars and also the resilience and redundancy that can be brought to bear in the operational environment and the information environment uh, from a macro to micro level. And, I, you know, we'll try to maybe discuss a little bit more about that, what I mean by macro and micro as we go through this conversation as well. But, um, yeah, that's that's a lot of what I'm seeing thus far. Yeah, that, I want to pull that apart, the, the macro, the micro. That's that's super interesting. One of the, uh, the debates on air power when it was very early or whether or not it actually had strategic level effect uh, is air power decisive. Uh, has always been a, a a point of contention, we'll call it. And uh, I would argue that certainly air power has uh, never had a strategic effect of zero, that's for sure. Uh, would you say that the, the strategic effect of what we're seeing in information operations in the Ukraine war is significantly larger than we have seen in, in that may be putting you in a box, are you saying it's uh, the information operations are, are, are having both a tactical and strategic level effect that's worth paying attention to? Absolutely, absolutely, and and I I like the way that you related that to air power because uh, I actually teach air power over in the air power department at Air Command and Staff College, but I'm also a cyber guy, you know. Um, so uh, looking at both of these sides of the coin and seeing sort of the historical attributes of what air power did um, early on, you know, in its infancy as it was growing and sort of becoming what it has become in, in the modern day, and now we see a lot of this happening with information and in cyberspace operations, especially this uh, the effects that can be uh, brought to bear very tactically, you know, very suddenly uh, at, at a, a technical threshold, you know, even on the battlefield to, to be able to, through the electromagnetic spectrum, send code through the air into a, a Wi-Fi aperture or something like that. Very technical, very tactical, all the way up to the strategic level of being able to mold and shape the attitudes, you know, the, the hu human brain space of, of, of militaries uh, writ large and governments. Uh, it's extreme, extremely malleable and brings so much power 
to the imp information environment and operational environment. When I say information environment, I want to go back to that macro and micro thing because it's not just a matter of tactical and, and strategic. It's also a, a the difference between global and local. Let's put, let me think think of it in those terms for just a moment. So by global, I mean okay. So whenever there are large news sources, information that's rele released to people on a global level. Um, something like the Kremlin, quote, you know, alleged Kremlin attack by that drone that was seen on YouTube all over the world, you know, and th that's a very global macro way to sort of affect information. But then you have the very micro ways and, and, and everything in between that happens in warfare, you know, that's happening operationally and tactically within warfare where information can be used to affect the decision calculus of an adversary all the way from that very sudden, hey, do I make this decision on the battlefield or that decision to the operational level of, okay, how are we going to mold this conflict to work for us over the period of the operational conflict and in our planning and everything that we're trying to bring about, you know, from that perspective as we go through. So uh, just so many things along that spectrum of, of information and how it affects the information environment and that macro micro way and the operational environment in the same ways from a micro and macro perspective. So that's very interesting with the, the macro and the micro and you talk about in warfare. I, I wanna get into some specific examples so we can start to pull some lessons out. You mentioned very much in warfare, but before we get there, I wanted to talk about some of the shaping. We talk a lot now about the competition continuum, and I, I think one of the most interesting things with this Ukraine case study is we get to see that competition continuum go all the way up to this level of warfare. So there was quite a bit of information operations coming uh, not only out of the Kremlin, but also out of Ukraine prior to this conflict. So I wanted to kind of look at some of maybe some examples there in terms of how you shape and how the uh, the actions of Russia and Ukraine shaped what this conflict looks like, specifically in the information domain. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I found very interesting about this, aside from the, the the major players in this from a national level perspective, is also all of these the fringe elements that are included in this. So especially on the Russian side, you think of just for instance, there was an article out this uh, this morning on Reuters about uh, Prigozhin, who heads up the Wagner Group, who's basically like Blackwater for Russia. You know, this uh, contract military is pulling his people out of Ukraine and very publicly saying, hey, you know, we need a rest. We need these things going on. That That is something that I've seen different, different news sources sort of, sort of start to seize upon and start extrapolating from that. Okay, where do we go from here? Well, those kinds of things, you know, in conflict are a lot different from what you have sort of in your phase zero moving up toward conflict where you're seeing people start to set sort of the terms of how they want to drive their information operations and how they want to uh, mold and shape the information environment as they move into it. One of the things that we did this year over at Air Command and Staff College that I found very interesting was a domain exercise where we were looking at, the, it was sort of a JADC2 perspective or JADO, a joint all domain operations perspective of trying to use 
all of the different kinetic forces and then also look at okay how does information shape this and how would that look leading up into it and i think one of the things that we need to do in further iterations is okay this phase zero sense of what do i do first what am i putting out in the news what am i hinting at what am i subtly trying to drive my adversary to think uh, and then maybe come at them from a different direction. This happens a lot in warfare as well, sort of faint, you know, but in this case, it would be an information faint. I'm fainting this direction, but I'm really coming from this direction. Um, and it's a whole di different way of looking at how we're using information to drive our enemies' decision cycles and things like that. You know, you've heard so many times, I'm sure throughout your military and academic career, sir, uh, the OODA loop, you know, the uh, observe, orient, uh, decide, act kind of concept. And and I think as we go through this conversation, we're going to probably hit on this a few more times because it is still relevant. It's still something and it's become more relevant in a lot of ways just because information has grown the and the impact of information has grown so rapidly and so vividly within the spectrum of warfare that that whole decision cycle has become sort of the central piece uh, and platform of how we prosecute warfare now, not just in the information or the cyber space domain and, and the information domains and human domain, but also in the kinetic domains to be able to to try to draw the attention or whatever it is, their decisions out calculus of our adversary away from the true target and put it up somewhere else so that we have uh, superiority uh, and potentially even supremacy for a limited uh, timestamp within a uh, given conflict window. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, one of the simplest examples of, of, of what you're talking about is leading up to the, the conflict itself, Russia's broadcasting of military operation, military exercise uh, to cover its operations of building up troops along the border. Now, famously, uh, or I should say infamously at this point, uh, that didn't work. It didn't seem that uh, uh, the West was was fooled by this narrative, but it did limit what a democracy or what some of the more uh, democratic type of societies, how they can respond, because there's not a, a clear threat. And so a very simple, very macro example. Sure. No, I think that's great. Uh, a great segue, Badger, because, you know, so much of uh, what you and I had talked about a little bit before is this whole nature of the gray space continuum and, you know, how that's factoring into uh, the Ukraine conflict and maybe a potential conflict with China in the future. I mean, we've seen lots of action around the Philippines uh, with China and Taiwan and so on and so forth. Um, and maybe that's something we can get into later. We're focused on Ukraine right now. But but the, the fact of the matter is, you know, you you have that gray space thing going on and it muddies the water in a lot of ways from a Western perspective, because we have things called, you know, the UN charter and we have uh, title 10 and title 50 and all these different sort of uh, governing responsibilities that we have to take into account whenever we, we want to make a move in one direction or another. And we have to be cognizant of those things, but also simultaneously, cognizant that our adversaries don't have those things as far as making decisions about whether or not we go to war or if we call it war or use in bellow or use ad bellum and all those different kinds of law uh, lawfare terms that we refer to today whenever we're trying to get into whether or not we can take kinetic action or what um, 
is uh, uh, use of force, you know, what allows use of force and all these different th different matters. So and that's not just to say from a kinetic perspective, but also within cyberspace and within the information space writ large um, where that so much of that is gray space. Um, where do we bleed out of that space into uh, red or blue or purple or whatever it may be uh, as a result of um, actions or reactions that could be driven or escalations that could be driven as a result of actions within the information space or the information environment bleeding over into the operational environment and so forth. So really kind of tricky areas to to navigate, but something that we need to be very mindful of, obviously. That's an interesting point, uh, this this gray space, and it's been defined about a thousand different ways, uh, and it's, it's become a buzz term, but just for our audiences, one of the, the ways I like to think about it is just uh, actions that inflict some sort of strategic effect or inflict some sort of um, uh, cost upon uh, on each other below the level of uh, traditional armed conflict. And so it's an easy way to do that. Another notable point is that the gray zone is really something we've created ourselves. Uh, we like to draw hard lines uh, in the sand that says this is this is war, this is not war. And in the doctrine development world, uh, especially at the, the the J7 level up in the the Pentagon, they're redefining uh, the not only the competition continuum, but they're also looking at elements like irregular warfare. Uh, and I would argue that a lot of the information operations fall into this larger umbrella of, of irregular warfare. And they're redefining this to say these kind of actions take place across the competition continuum. Are there specific lessons we learned from Ukraine that helps us uh, better work? And, and I'm thinking in terms of our policy of defending forward uh, in the cyber domain, the, the anti-access aerial denial uh, type of spectrum. What uh, specific lessons in the competition realm have we kind of learned from from Ukraine? Yeah, great question, Badger. And actually, something that you sort of brushed up against in that question before you kind of made it into the the rest of it was the concept of what what do we do or what kind of actions sort of took place ahead of time in preparation for what was going to happen in Ukraine. And from an information standpoint, something that I think I brought up to you before is that Microsoft immediately recognized, uh, and this is funny because it's coming from a corporate perspective, not a national, not a government, not, not a uh, international, but a, you know, actual corporate perspective uh, recognized that, Hey, you know, Ukraine has all this data, all this information on these servers, server farms, in the, these cloud, you know, spaces in Ukraine, on premises within the borders of Ukraine, and it was immediately uh, important to understand, hey, if we can take this information and say move it to the cloud in uh, the United Kingdom, it'll be safe there. Because it would be really, really stupid for Russia to try to take out or even hack or any of those kind of things that protected data in another country, uh, especially a NATO, uh, NATO or protected you know, country. And so that really opened up the gates for Ukraine to continue to have access to that information, to be able to use that information when, and whenever it was trying to draw on that to be able to prosecute warfare, uh, so many different things. So that information protection sort of 
strategy was super important really early on, not to mention several other things uh, as far as trying to protect the landlines and satellite systems and the electromagnetic spectrum, being able to clear that up, which kind of goes into your whole A2AD question that we were talking about earlier and, and that you were just asking about now. And that that sort of now I'll segue into that a little bit more because that whole A2AD concept, we think so many times of, okay, well, anti-access air denial is really about air defense. Well, no, it's more than that. It's also about the electromagnetic spectrum. It's also about cyberspace. It's also about information space. You can deny access and uh, deny areas within information spaces, within cyberspace, within the electromagnetic spectrum. You can do all those same things that is done in different ways, obviously, and it gets pretty technical whenever you start digging down into it. But the concept is still the same. You can still deny access to information. You can deny access to different decision spaces, all of those different things. And being able to do things like cyber uh, Cybercom has done with uh, persistent engagement and defend for, defending forward, not to mention being able to study the electromagnetic operati- operational environment or the EMO that, that we've been able to do over the years since, say, the 2014-2015 uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict have allowed us to be able to not just find out for ourselves, but also help Ukraine study those environments and then be able to make better decisions uh, and faster decisions and better predictions about how Russia was going to prosecute warfare within those information spaces now. And so we've been able to sort of not be, be behind the eight ball, but be ahead of the ahead of the the, the trend that we expected Russia to bring within the information and operational environments and help Ukraine do the same things. And I think that's what's led to so many military successes within the operational and information environments we've seen throughout this whole conflict that has kept Russia on its heels rather than on the balls of its feet being able to push forward and and have early the early successes uh, in their kinetic and non-kinetic drives. So I want to segue to something here. There's a significant lessons that we're learning, we're adapting, like you said, it's allowed us to, uh, to, to be ahead of the trend. Are there specific lessons that our adversaries are learning that we're not learning or lessons that they can employ that we cannot. We talked a little bit about our limitations uh, inside the, just the way the, the, the rule-based Western system. So it makes sense that there may be lessons here that our, our adversaries, uh, China, uh, Iran, uh, even North Korea, who employs significant information operations, are they learning lessons out there that they're able to employ that we just simply can't or that maybe perhaps we're missing altogether? Yeah, and, and that's actually been an issue. It, that's not necessarily so much an emergent issue as business as usual in some ways for those adversaries. They recognize, I think, the same things that we they recognize for the last decade or two or maybe even longer. One thing I wanted to put out there before I just kind of a little off from this is I read a book by Thomas Ridd called Active Measures, and it's basically a history of Russian information operations from the 1800s, early 1800s, all the way through modern day. So our adversaries, you know, Russia, China, you know, in those areas have been thinking about information in those ways and prosecuting information in ways uh, for centuries you know, that that now we're just kind of going, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, we really need to think in new ways about how to counter this, how to deal with this. I won't say that we haven't been thinking about that for all that time, but but we're having to really think in new ways because now that information speed 
has advanced so rapidly. And I think we're going to see just more and more of that from these big four that you just mentioned, China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. Um, not to mention that when, when as far as Russian, the doctrine of warfare within the gray space or phase zero or whatever uh, areas and auspices you want to talk about it in the information sphere, the way that that is prosecuted from from the perspective of those adversaries is generally we'll use whatever we can. So, hey, criminal gang number two, if you want to go out there and do this, suddenly you're a cyber patriot because you did a ransomware attack on uh, Colonial Pipeline or JBS Foods or whatever it may be, and, you know, and we've seen that, you know, if we, or, if, you know, solar winds or something like that, um, or the hafnium uh, hack that China pulled off not too long after solar winds was, was carried out by Russia. But I think a really good example going back to the Colonial Pipeline, I mean, that changes such a a huge amount of decision calculus because then we're talking about not just information but also critical infrastructure and the damage that can be brought to bear and the distraction that can be brought to bear by interrupting something that is so intrinsic to the American way of life. I mean, you saw people doing crazy things like filling up Walmart bags with gasoline, you know, um, trying to to outrun this, you know, the loss of fuel. Uh, people were really freaking out about it and, and um, rapidly changes the decision calculus of uh, a nation who is so dependent on those things for their way of life every day uh, to be able to drive wherever you need to go or fly wherever you need to go or ride a train wherever you need to go uh, within the time frames that we operate at in the West uh, due to our free market economy and society. So it's it's just, you know, these it's not just them striking at the way we do life. It's the way we uh, they're striking at the way we think about life at our our whole philosophy of life. Um, and we, we have to keep that in mind um, that it's not that that our adversaries aren't just thinking about us in terms of what can we physically do and not do, but what can we emotionally do and not do? What can we mentally do and not do? What can we societally or culturally do and not do? And then striking at those things too. So it's a very multi-level dynamic way of thinking about warfare and and slowing down the decision cycle of as, us as their adversary. Uh, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it certainly does. It, it's a it's a uh, a change in the character of war without a doubt. But one of the I mentioned a regular warfare earlier. One of the big pushes as the 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 concept was being redefined and reworked was to eliminate it altogether, whether or not the, the distinction was important. And so I think as we look in the information domain and we we study this case study, one of the things that we have learned, uh, not only through this case study, but also the last 20 years of the, the coin coin operations, is our traditional Kolozwitzian ideas of strategic points and defeat of the, uh, the enemy doesn't really work in this type of warfare universally. Now, certainly there's fielded forces attacking fielded forces, but this idea of instead of mass destruction, but mass disruption. I know uh, you and I are both familiar with the work of John Arquilla that this idea that a lot of disruption can cause a lot of problem, a lot of little disruption can cause a problem. Uh, the filling up of Walmart bags, uh, this doesn't have an effect on your fielded forces, but it has a field an effect on decision making calculus at the policy level. And so this uh, this concept of uh, of disruption, uh, and typically we defend against uh, disruption through protection. So you start to see the the joint function of protection uh, starting to dominate. 
and, and trying to, to move that to more of a civilian level. So there's there's a, a great deal for us through our own through our previous paradigms to re-examine, and I, I think that's fantastic. And so I'd like to use that to bridge to our uh, uh, the next question here. We mentioned Microsoft. Certainly, Elon Musk and Starlink has been important. Uh, you mentioned the the uh, the criminal activity suddenly being okay. Now you're our information forces. It would be interesting to, uh, in our own AFDP 313, we define information forces very specifically as this offensive capability put forth by the Air Force. How do you think Ukraine or Russia defines information forces? Is there significant lessons to be learned here? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, from it, it would be expected for Ukraine to sort of have at least some doctrinal uh, holdovers, if not underpinnings, that Russia does, just because they lived under Russian rule for so long and they have, you know, culturally some ties and closeness uh, and perspectives and and cultural identity that are tied to uh, at least Eastern European, if not Russian ideals and, 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 and thoughts on, on this matter. But one of the things that uh, that I wanted to key in on, you were saying a couple of things about warfare before we, we kind of got into this question that I think are really relevant and apropos to this question is we like to define different kinds of warfare. We like to call things, you know, information warfare or irregular warfare or total war, whatever they may be. Whereas our adversaries, they just say it's all warfare. We're just using the different capabilities we have to prosecute warfare. And that means right now, as far as they're concerned in the information space, China is already at war with the U.S. Now, the U.S. doesn't think about it in the same way. We're not think going, we're at war with China right now. But China, trust me, they do. Russia, same way. They're like, we're at war with the U.S. right now and the West, for that matter. Because as far as they're concerned, whether it's in the information space or somehow done in an irregular way, whatever way you want to frame that, it's all war. And I think that goes to the mindset that Russia and China, uh, Russia and Ukraine, sorry, both have, not to mention China and North Korea and Iran as well, that, hey, we're on, in this constant sort of confluence and, and flowing of, of warfare, whether we're at kinetic war or not. It's always on. And so it's important to sort of frame it in that way because then we can start to understand a little bit more of the mindset of our adversaries and then be able to defend about uh, against that a little bit more. And interestingly, and I, I think we'll probably see this more and more, the introduction from a Western standpoint into this whole concept is, I believe, persistent engagement that we have heard from General Nakasone and Cybercom. This persistent engagement concept, we call it persistent engagement, but really what it is, is we are staying persistently engaged in a conflict in the information space, at least in cyberspace, with our adversaries. Now, will that grow to include other domains and other concepts with, within those domains? I don't know, but I do see it actually working right now within that particular piece of the information space and the information environment and working very, very effectively. Because like we talked about when you asked the last question, hey, because we've been engaged in that information space and been able to stay engaged with our adversaries, we've been able to feed that information about those adversaries and make better preparations, not just for the U.S. and for the West, but also for Ukraine, for 
many other people who are having to go, uh, you know, Taiwan, Japan, uh, South Korea, and so on and so forth, who are actually having to stay engaged even more closely with these adversaries than we are. And that's the idea of defending forward as well. If you stay engaged right up next to whatever adversary you're looking for, let's say in Ukraine, right up next to Russia or in Taiwan or Japan, uh, right up next to China or in South Korea out of next to North Korea and so on and so forth, then in that instance, geography matters because the next door neighbors are going to be more constantly involved in cyberspace and in the information space than they would be with us, even though they are engaged with us. And we can learn so much more and gather so much more information and intelligence and so on within those up close and personal decision spaces than we could otherwise, and then be able to use that for our advantage and for the advantage of those nations we're partnering with in those areas as well. So uh, a really great question, and I, and I think that um, and I hope that we're going to continue to think along those lines and really try to stay persistently engaged, even if we just use that terminology from here on out uh, and into the future. I think that's the direction uh, at the doctrine level we're hearing uh, as a watching the JP1 Val 1 rewrite. Uh, there's a lot of push to define regular warfare as being conducted throughout the competition continuum. I think the biggest consternation has just been in doctrine and in Western society, words mean things. And the, the connection of warfare to anything uh, has a, a specific meaning. So a lot of times it, it's a, almost a cultural thing as we look words and have a very specific meaning in the West. And then as we move towards other societies, other cultures, uh, words can have multiple meetings and so yeah. there's a there's a lot of you know the world is, is is very much globalized now and so we see not only conflicts of ideology but conflicts of culture uh, which is no surprise given uh, coin operations over the last few years yeah and it's and it's interesting that yeah i wanted to kind of play off of that a little bit it's interesting if you you look at linguistic differences english is a is a low context language but chinese for instance or uh korean or very high context languages, meaning that you have to understand a lot more about the context in which you're speaking if you're speaking Chinese or Korean or something like that than if you were speaking English, because English is just like words that are built into sentences, whereas <laughs> the context that you're speaking in in Chinese, it's also putting emphasis on certain syllables and uh, not to mention you're deriving meaning very esoterically from different cultural cues and things of that sort. So it's it's not just a cultural difference, it's a linguistic, literally linguistic difference in the way that we talk about things. And um, that that I think gets lost in the melee a lot. Um, if we And something just going back to, for instance, OEF, uh, one of the big reports that came out of OEF is the reason that we didn't do as well as we probably should have there is because we didn't understand the culture. We didn't understand how they were thinking and the perspective they were coming at it from. We risk the same kinds of things in future conflicts uh, if we don't go into it with the mindset of, oh, they don't just speak a different language. They have a whole different mindset about words and understanding those words and the culture that's all tied to it. So it's it's a very complex data set to deal to deal with, but one that we need to continue to think through as we move into potential conflicts in the future. Yeah, that that's fascinating. But I, I don't think I'd ever thought through that uh, to that that degree. Uh, and I think we certainly see that mm -hmm. there is a that culture 
the the chosen language, both Zelensky and Putin, the, the, the strong man image is extremely important. I think that there's definitely lessons to be learned there for those that are out there trying to fight in the information space. What I'd like to do is just kind of give you an opportunity here to, to talk directly to the audience. So this is happening in real time. And so our airmen can learn about this real time. Can you provide them a lens or some things that they should really be paying attention to to help them prepare for a possible future conflict in this space? Absolutely. This is something I think about a lot and something that I foot stomp to pretty much all my students, uh, cyber or otherwise, is that a lot of what conflict or war is today is about making faster decisions and better predictions. So faster decisions, better predictions. And I say that over and over and over again. And what I mean by that, and I tie that back to that whole OODA loop conversation we were having earlier, is that now that we have things coming online, for instance, like chat GPT, just think of that in the context that it's in right now. Right now, it's more about, okay, how can I, from a, from a, 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 positive perspective, people can use that to speed up their decision cycle rapidly, very rapidly. For instance, I, I actually have it on my phone. I was messing around with it the other day, and I said, write me a Python script to parse music into PowerPoint slides. And in five seconds, I had a Python script written that I could use immediately that would have taken me a day to write if I were actually writing that Python script, you know, in, in a Unix shell or something like that. And so it, it's remarkable that we have that kind of power and, and rapidity at our fingertips, which allows us to make those very rapid decisions, you know, faster decisions, but also helps us to make better predictions. And as a result of, of so many things, those technologies that are being brought to bear right now, that's what warfare is going to be about from now on. I mean, it's really what it's always been about. I mean, if you go all the way back to Sun Tzu, you can see things as far as knowing yourself and knowing your enemy, you know, being successful in a thousand battles, that kind of stuff. Sun Tzu already knew that information was key to the 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 prosecution and, and, and to, of war and to victory. But today we see it even more pronounced because we have so much information that's out there. Even if you're using, say, the basic free version of something like ChatGPT or Google's Bard, which I also have access to, I'm testing that uh, for Google right now, you, you are just skimming the surface web. But even with that, you can do things so much more rapidly than you could otherwise. And that, and that gives you a leg up on your competition gives you a leg up on folks who are in the intellectual space, things of that sort, if, if you know how to use it effectively and, effi and efficiently, and it, it amps up your efficiency, it amps up your effectiveness. So those kinds of things of making those faster decisions and better predictions, and I believe that quantum computing is going to help us with predictions too because it's a probabilistic computing that helps us to be able to calculate probabilities that we couldn't before and uh, be able to make decisions very much, much faster than we're able to now. So those those are some technologies, some concepts that I believe that our our airmen, our FGOs, uh, whomever uh, is out there, whoever are out there in the information battle space and in the operational battle space really need to be thinking about because these are the technologies that are coming online right now that are growing extraordinarily rapidly um, and that we're going to see, I believe, really come to ultimate fruition within the next, say, five to 10 years. So anybody who's, say, early to mid-career right now, 
by the time they they reach mid to late career, they're going to see uh, not just a big change in their own personal lives, but a change in warfare, a change in global economics, a change in everything that we uh, experience as human beings every single day. The second thing that I would like to hit on, and this one kind of in the in the uh, academic realms can be a little bit. I'll say controversial because I, I kind of take a different thought pattern than a lot of my colleagues do about um, about the way we educate our airmen and also the way that I think about warfare. Because so many times in the past, if you if you look uh, if you compare, for instance, you brought up Clausewitz a minute ago. Uh, I'd also throw Germany out there. So with Clausewitz, you have this person who's like, uh, you know, it's it's an art. You can't really make a lot of predictions about warfare um you have to kind of roll with it but germany is more like oh no it's a science um you know it's all about trying to have predictions about warfare well i agree a little bit more with Clausewitz, but i don't agree with either one of them completely the reason i say that is because i'm if, if you come at the way we teach our uh, our joint force in pme about warfare uh, I, I feel uncomfortable sometimes talking about things using the word theory a lot of people talk about war theory or international relations theory or whatever something with theory on the end of it. And I think that many times we're giving people the wrong idea about what we can do theoretically within the those different environments. It's sort of like Heraclitus said to Ponte Ray, which also was the uh, on the uh, Cyber College Crest, uh, which unfortunately was closed recently. But to Ponterre means everything flows. The idea that a recently flowing, you can never step on a river, the same river twice. Warfare is the same way. There are no two wars that are the same. There may be some similarities. There may be some data that you can pull from those wars that may have some similarity, but you're never, ever going to get the point where you have enough empirical data to be able to make scientific claims and predictions about that a war in the future based off of that particular conflict. It doesn't happen. The, the idea of theory is that it's based off of something called a hypothesis, which is an educated guess, which you can test. Unfortunately, you have to have lots and lots of good data to be able to make those tests, to be able to make those predictions and decisions that you need to make. And that goes back to what I was saying in my previous comment, that it's all about making faster decisions and better predictions. If we can't uh, get the data that we need to be able to build those algorithms, to be able to come up with uh, concepts and ideas to even get to something like a hypothesis, then how are we going to get to a theory? And I think we have to be cognizant of that. I think we need to be teaching our uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and guardians that, uh, and, and making sure that they understand that, look, you know, when you're approaching warfare, you need to recognize that there are some things with the data that are, that's at your fingertips that you can do and some things you cannot do and you're never going to be able to do. And so we need to be thinking about warfare in those terms and ensuring that people go away from our PME with that in mind. Um, and any training that we do is, for that matter, with that in mind, that here, here's, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do, here's what a theory really means and how you build to that, get the best data we possibly can, uh, move forward with that, and do the best we can in modern and future warfare. That's going to do it for this week's Lessons Learned podcast. The show is recorded, mixed, and produced by the LeMay Center's Doctrine Outreach section. Special thanks to Dr. Sipper, the LeMay Center, and Air University. And as always, the views expressed by our hosts and guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Air University, the Air Force, or any government agency. I'm Nicholas Underwood. We will see you next time.